God, we, we bless you because you are awesome. You're worthy to be praised. And what a joy it is to hear the voices of your people sing. I can't imagine what it's like for you um, as you hear your people sing. And, and we are simply joining in with an anthem that's heaven strong. There are angels that continually circle about your throne, uh, singing how worthy you are. And so it's right for us as your people to praise you because you are worthy of praise. You have done great things, and you are a great God. And so I pray this morning, uh, even as we sang that song, that we'd see more of your glory, the gravity and the weight and the magnitude of who you are, your character, and in that, that we would be led to a greater affection for you, um, full submission to you, and greater usability in your hands. Uh, we, we love you. We thank you that because of Jesus, we have hope today, not only for this life, but the life to come. And so I pray that you remind us of maybe things that, that we have heard countless times before, that you remind us of how good it is to be yours, how good is, it is to receive grace and to be forgiven. Help us to see in your word um, beautiful things. Show us your glory. We pray through your word as we hear it, as we see ourselves, in a sense, in the story, that you'd help us know how to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Such a joy to be able to sing together. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, I think it's page 855. And we are continuing on in our study through the book of Acts. We started just a few weeks ago. And if you haven't been with us, uh, Acts is basically volume 2 of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, same author. And it's really the, the story of the birth of the church and the, and the Acts of the apostles, those unique followers of Jesus, as well as just the acts of the Holy Spirit on earth through his people. But I want to start by just giving you a, a little bit of good news. Anybody down for that? Can I give you just a little bit of good news? All right. So at the end of your life, uh, your worst failure isn't beyond God's grace. Like your, your worst moment won't define you eternally if you know Jesus Christ. And that's good news for those of us, which is all of us, who have failed and do fail in various ways that ultimately we can know that, that we serve a God, that we kneel to a God of restoration. And he takes our various forms and forces of failure and he makes us new. And we get to be acceptable in his sight. And we're going to see that in various ways this morning, but I hope that encourages you. And I want you to do something for me. As you look in your Bible, I want you to look, go to the first page of Acts. And I want you just to kind of scan to the left to the book of John, the Gospel of John. In John 21, and I'll tell you why I want you to do that, just, just kind of symbolically as it were. It's really just the turn of a page, quite literally in our Bibles, to go from John 21 to Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in John chapter 21... Um, there's an encounter that Peter has. So Peter is the, the same one that we're going to hear this morning that is standing up and preaching with boldness in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And in John chapter 21, what we have is we have an encounter with Peter and Jesus. And so to set the stage, just weeks before Peter gets up to preach his first and a glorious sermon about Jesus, he had denied even knowing Jesus. Just weeks before. So he was close with Jesus, incredibly familiar with his ministry and his miracles, had, had said that he would go to, to the death for Jesus, but yet when Jesus was turned over to be crucified, 
he denied even knowing him three times. And Jesus had told him he was going to do that. And he did it. It was his greatest, you could say his greatest failure in his life, spiritually, practically, and generally. And what we have is Jesus, after raising from the dead, he appears to various people, including Peter, over the course of 40 days. We saw that as we opened the book of Acts. And this is one of the many encounters. And he comes to Peter, and he basically says this. You can feel the gravity of this. Peter, on the heels of his greatest failure, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. And he's grieved because Jesus asked it a second time. He says, well, if you love me, then feed my lambs. Peter, third time, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. And Jesus goes on in very brief form to describe for Peter that he used to be a man who just moved about at his own freedom. But there's going to come a point now in his life where people are going to stretch his hands and take him off to a place where he doesn't want to go, which it tells us in that text that it, Jesus described for him the way he was going to die. So you have this man on the heels of his greatest failure now has this moment quite literally of restoration because the last words that Jesus says to him in this text to end the book of John symbolically in Peter's experience is follow me. Follow me. And so now just days later, weeks later in Jerusalem, the same place where Jesus was crucified, the same place where Peter denied even knowing Jesus, Peter now stands up to preach boldly and fiercely that life is found in Jesus Christ. And what a story of transformation. But that's not just for Peter. Like we, like existing living testimonies of the grace and the transformative power of God. So whatever failure you might put in that box, my greatest failure, you can know that you serve a God of restoration. And this morning, in some sense, he's reminding you of the fact that he's not done with you yet. And there's a call to follow him and be used by him. And now we see in Acts chapter 2, Peter standing up. And what is happening here, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, Jesus has promised that power was going to come from heaven to empower his people to be his witnesses, those who testify to what he has done and what he has said throughout the whole world. And so what we have at the beginning of chapter 2 is that moment comes, and the Holy Spirit comes, and there's these simple Galileans are given the ability to supernaturally speak in languages that aren't, that aren't their own tongue. And there's confusion and curiosity about what's going on. Some people think they're drunk. Some people just simply ask, what does this mean? So Peter stands up, we saw the start of this last week, to explain what it is that they're seeing. And the second half of his sermon really points heartily to Jesus. And in first, he, he explains to them from the Old Testament in Joel chapter 2. That what they're seeing was an outpouring of God's spirit that was foretold centuries before. There's going to come a moment where the spirit of God would come to give power and to change supernaturally people who waited for his spirit. And so now let's read in Acts chapter 2 verses 22 through 41. This is really the second half of Peter's sermon. I was thinking this week, it's really strange to preach someone else's sermon. And that's what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm going to give you Peter's sermon and kind of expound upon him. I wonder, by God's grace, I'll find out someday how he felt about how I did this morning in that exercise. But 
All right? So Acts chapter 2, verse 22 is where we'll start. This is God's word. It says this. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So Peter's quoting from Psalm 16 in the Old Testament. He says, therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, the one who wrote Psalm 16, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. That is, the Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, again, he quotes from Psalm 110, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Praise God. Okay, it's just a lot to chew on. There's a way in which this could be probably 10 to 15 sermons. But it just felt appropriate at least this time to just preach it as we receive it as a sermon, as a single unit. And so in verse 22, Peter stands up. He says, men of Israel, kind of a broad commendation to everyone within earshot. Listen to these words. Jesus, this man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that you saw in your midst. Jesus was attested to them. So if you've ever been to a museum, you know what an exhibition is or exhibit is. So you go to an exhibit to see something that's kind of foreign to your experience. You see an exhibit about uh, maybe prehistoric animals, some culture you don't know in the past, and you look at it and you say, oh, that's how that looks. That's what that looks like. It's what it would have felt like to be there. 
In this way, Peter's saying Jesus is an exhibit. He's an exhibition of the wonder and the power of God in the flesh, in your midst. You saw it. It was attested to you, and you observed it. Right here in this place, you saw all these things take place, a living, breathing demonstration of the supreme wonder of God. Jesus was also a supreme display of what it looked like to follow the king, to be a kingdom man, submitted completely to the will of the Father. As those who now follow God, that one day will be set free from the curse of sin, free to follow and worship God, free from disease and pain and captivity. And we have that promise as well, but we see it exhibited in Jesus. In verse 23, I commented on this last week. This is one of some places in Scripture where you see the combination of what seem like two contradictory ideas or principles. So Peter says this. He says, this Jesus, the one who was attested to you by miracles, whom you saw, this Jesus was delivered up according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And you nailed him to the cross. And so we see this, com- this marriage of two ideas that to us feel contradictory. We see it a little bit later as well. Those that the- God will call to himself, but yet Peter's calling people to believe in Jesus. And so, but in this moment, I think we have to be confronted with a couple things. Let me share those. The Jews at this time would have had no category for a crucified Messiah. It would have been unthinkable to them that the Messiah would be executed and die. As one author put it, why? Because Messiahs don't lose. Like Messiahs win. But the gospel wasn't plan B for God. It was God's will, his predetermined plan to send God the Father, to send God the Son to the cross to pay the penalty for sin and for sinners. It was what he had in mind from eternity past. That's what this is telling us. And many other places depict the same thing. It was plan A. And there are times where we can think, like, was God just kind of throwing out a plan, just kind of see if it sticked? Like, is that how God works out his plans? And sometimes we do that. I can think of times where I've sent my, my girls into, like, a sporting game, like, not knowing, like, uh, do they like soccer? Are they, they going to know how to kick the ball? Or you see them sing for the first time, you're like, I hope, I hope this goes well. We see how it works out. That's not how God works out his plan. That all of history in his hands. Jesus was plan A. From the beginning, before there was time, the Father, in his predetermined will, was set to send Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we see something of this. It says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, he was revealed in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The gospel is plan A. The delivering up of Jesus to death was precisely what God the Father had in mind before the Garden of Eden, before the first sin, before you and I lived one day or made one decision. The glory of God was going to be achieved principally through the execution of Jesus on the cross. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But then we have right after that, you crucified him. You can't somehow remove yourself from culpability for the crucifixion of Jesus. And I think really practically for us, what this does is it it reminds us that the gospel confronts all of us with our guilt. 
The gospel confronts every single one of us with our guilt. Because Peter says, men, women, children, everyone within earshot, listen to this. It's as if saying it this way, your hands are not clean. You are guilty. You rejected his love. You would have asked for Barabbas instead of Jesus. You rebelled against his rule. Your hands are not clean. You're, you're guilty just the same as those gathered in that place in that moment. You crucified this Jesus. Someone once said it this way. It says, only the man or woman who's willing to claim his share in the guilt of the cross can claim his share in the grace of the cross. It's only when we know the gravity of the guilt that we bear as those who, in a sense, our sin kept Jesus there. And this is also a paradox that the, it was the will of the Father. You could say that God, the Father, held Jesus on the cross. That he would be like a sponge to soak up all of our wrath for all of our moments and seasons and lifestyle of failure. But it was also our sin that held him there just the same. And none of us like to be confronted, I'm guessing. There might be some strange person in the audience that likes to be confronted. We certainly don't like to be confronted with our guilt. But here's where the, the gospel is so life-giving. Like this confrontation where you feel the sense of your guilt of the cross can be the most life-giving confrontation you will ever have. Why? Because when you feel your guilt... By God's grace, it will cause you to scramble to some place to make yourself innocent. And by God's grace, that'll be all the way to Jesus because he's the only one. He's the only one that can make you innocent. The only one. By faith, by grace, in Christ alone, there's a life-giving confrontation. We look to Jesus to, to clean our record and make us innocent. But not only did Jesus die, not only was he crucified, and very powerfully, Peter says, God raised him up. God raised him up. He loosed the pangs of death. He took away the agony of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. He had an indestructible life. There's no way that the grave could hold him. Jesus' resurrection put an end to the agony of death. And this word for agony in some translation or pangs of death is literally birth pains. You can think of it this way. There's a sense in which Jesus' tomb was like a womb. And when he burst forth out of the grave, he did so perpetrating newness of life to all those who would look to him. Sin, death, conquering power in Jesus. Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He came out of the grave alive, born, as it were, to give life to men. And Jesus is alive. And if he's not alive, then, as Paul said, then our faith is in vain. But if he is alive, then it makes all the difference in the world. And every single person on this planet has to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. And I pray that our response to the resurrection of Jesus, that he is Lord. And I've been given the blessing of new life. And I have power to walk differently in this life because he's alive. And because he's alive, so am I in this life and the life to come. Jesus shrugged off the staying power of the grave and he walked out victorious. And as his people, one day we have the hope of the same thing, that we'll walk completely victorious, free from sin, 
ultimately not just free from the power, but the very presence of sin. That's why Paul says, talking about the resurrection of believers, there's going to come a day, this life will be over, we'll have new bodies, we'll be resurrected just like Jesus was. And in that moment, the greatest rhetorical question ever is asked, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Every ounce of this sting has been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus the one who is the firstborn from the dead. On the heels of those questions, Paul briefly explains the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And right in this space, there's some really bad news that we have to be confronted with. So what is Paul talking about? Well, sin is the source of death's pain. Death is the culminating work of sin and death is painful because of sin. And it's painful because all of us have broken God's law. And so we stand condemned before God because we've broken in various ways the law of God. And that's what brings about sting and pain in our death. If we die apart from Christ, having never believed in him, it will be sin, the breaking of God's law, which will be the the kindling for our judgment in hell forever. And that's hard to say. It's hard to think about. It's hard for you to hear but it's nonetheless true. But not so with Jesus. Because he perfectly obeyed the law. There's no sting for him in the law because he perfectly obeyed the law. He was able to to die as a substitute and now live as a a death-conquering king. He was sinless and he completely obeyed the law and death has no power over him is impossible for Jesus to be held by the grave. And so Peter goes on to quote two Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And in both of these examples, he's basically pointing to the fact that David wrote both of these sections. But you need to understand something. David is dead. The first example is in Psalm 16, where Peter quotes, and particularly verse 27, it says, he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter draws attention to the fact that David died. His flesh actually did see corruption. He did decay. He gave in ultimately to death. The implication is what? He must have been talking about somebody else. He pointed to the resurrection of Jesus. Beforehand, he pointed forward to this one, this unique descendant, whom God had promised David would sit on his throne forever, he's the one who would never see decay, who would never see corruption, but instead would have forever life. And God had promised David one of his descendants would sit on the throne in 2 Samuel 7. And he draws attention, this fact that David is dead, but Jesus wasn't abandoned to the grave He wasn't overtaken by decay. And he goes on to quote from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Again, David is dead. He didn't ascend into the heavens. So what is he talking about in Psalm 110? Jesus silenced the religious leaders through this psalm in the Gospels in Luke chapter 20. And he basically highlights the fact that, hey, what David is saying here is he said, the Lord said to my Lord. So God said to my Lord, Something And in that moment, he's drawn attention to the fact that Jesus wasn't talking about David. 
And David wasn't talking about himself, but he was talking about Jesus as Lord. And so Jesus is the Christ. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father with great might. God, in Ephesians 1, says this, that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So Jesus is this coronated king, takes his place in heaven. And now for those in Christ, we're seated with Jesus in the heavenly places and he continues his ministry from heaven. He sends the promise of of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to fill his people, to make him usable in his hands. And he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, the Lord Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And here's where we'll finish for today. Verse 37 through 39 is the response. We talked last week about every time we read God's word, there should be something of what we see in this text. What should I do with this? What do I do with what I've heard? What does this mean? How should I respond? That's exactly what they say. Verse 37, when they heard this, all of these words about Jesus, they were cut to the heart, pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The gospel demands a response from everyone. I'll say it plainly this way. I think culturally in our American Christianity, there's even t-shirts and sweatshirts say, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is not interested in being your homeboy. He's not. Like Jesus is king. And kings have subjects. They don't have homeboys. Jesus is king. And if he's king, the question is, am I his subject? Am I subject to his rule and his reign? And that's what Peter's getting to. It's like the response to what you have heard, the response to Jesus being shown to you by miracles and signs and wonders and power, him being the exhibition of the power of God, is this, turn. Turn from self-rule and rebellion and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's the response. Repent. It's not mere sorrow over sin. So biblical repentance is. It's not just feeling bad about a bad choice. When, when you think about the dif- different shades of failure, it's not just, man, I feel bad about having done that. That's not biblical repentance. There's a type of sorrow that is worldly that doesn't lead to anything eternal or godly. But here's the picture of repentance. Think with me just for a second. I'll put you in a panic moment. So just imagine you're late for your own wedding, okay? That's pretty serious. Imagine you're driving down the road, And you see on your left the road that leads to the church where you're getting married. And so you're already late, and you drive, and you realize, I just passed where I needed to turn. So just imagine for a moment, the next turn you have, you're going to do a U-turn to get back to where you need to go. Just think for a second how earnest your turn would be. Like, I have got to get back to where I should be. I'm late for my wedding. That's the kind of angst in repentance, It's not just a mere acknowledgement, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be over here. It's a no, let me turn as fast as I can to right what's wrong and to come back here. And that's what repentance is. You turn away from self-rule and rebellion and self-reliance and self-righteousness and say, I'm no longer doing this. I'm following God and my life is his. I'm living for him now. That's biblical repentance. And Peter says, repent. The response is turn. Let your tears turn into turning. Turn to God and follow him. 
And in response to your turning, be baptized. Give visual depiction to your new life. That's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a visual expression of an inward change, that repentance that we have made, that we've died to an old way of life. As we go in the water, we're raised, as it were, as we come out to walk in newness of life, just like Jesus came out of the tomb and gives life to those who trust in him. Repent and be baptized and enjoy the forgiveness and restoration of a God who restores broken and sinful people. This section ends with this wonderful picture and promise. Verse 39, look there with me as we finish. It says, for the promise is for you. Everything related to being able to turn, to repent, to believe, to receive forgiveness, the promise of the Spirit that makes us new from the inside out. It says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So know what Peter doesn't do. He believes in the sovereignty of God. That God is the one who has to save people. But in response to the question, his response isn't when they say, what should we do? Well, I guess you'll have to wait. We'll see. God's going to save who's going to save, and so we'll just have to wait and see. That's not what he says. What he says is repent and believe in the gospel. Believe now. God is calling you to respond now. And he said that promise, that call is for for you and for your children in this picture of all who are far off. So here, here it is. The gospel message is for all who are far off. And I've said this before. And all are far off. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this life-transforming, eternal, eternally saving work is for all who are far off. And every single person is far off. And it's our responsibility to take that message, to proclaim it, that it might fall on fertile ground and that people would come to life through the one who came to life, ultimately out of the grave. And God gives us everything we need for that task. So just like Peter, as those whose failures have been washed away by the work of Jesus, and we now stand, we sing, we serve, restored in his name, that we can stand just like Peter did with boldness to proclaim life in Jesus' name. And if you're a Christian in this room this morning, that's your responsibility, just like it's mine. Every single one of us. That's why we plant churches. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we get up here every Sunday and preach the same message because Jesus is the only hope for the nations. There's no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And so together, let's be committed to be those who boldly and faithfully proclaim life in his name. Let's pray to that and I'll worship I'll invite the worship team back up and we'll sing one last song God we need your help with with every bit of this Um, any inkling in us towards you any movement toward the cross any movement toward desiring to to know you is a work of your grace I pray that we're maybe in certain ways this morning we are mindful of the things that make us feel the magnitude of our guilt that we'd also be reminded in that moment, if we are yours, um, that where sin has and does abound, that grace abounds all the more. We thank you that you are glorified in the rescue of failures, that you get fame and worth and glory by redeeming those who were formerly captive to sin. And God, I pray if there's anyone in this room 
that's never surrendered to the Lord Jesus, who's never seen him as king and become his subject, I pray that you do a supernatural work even now to make this a day of salvation. Would we be mindful as your people as we go to respond in faith and obedience to your call to be your witnesses, to walk even now as those alive from the dead, a life in keeping with repentance, we're returning away from the things of the world, the things of the flesh, to walk in newness of life. Help us in that, I pray, for your glory, for our joy. As we sing even now, help us to sing as if we believe every single word that we're singing. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together and we'll sing.